0: Well, once more, we open to the book of Ephesians, so open your Bibles to Ephesians 6, God willing, next week, we will complete our series on Ephesians. It's been said that the history of mankind is the history of war. One historian looked back over the last 2,000 years and could only find 46 years where there was not a war somewhere. History of America has been the history of war. We got started with the Revolutionary War, the War of 1812, the Mexican-American War, the Civil War, the Spanish-American War, World War One, World War II, Korean War, Vietnam War, Persian Gulf War, Afghanistan. And there were, there were smaller skirmishes as well. And then war in Ukraine, war in Israel and Gaza. and it's going on and on. what Where's it all going? Bible says that it's all going to culminate in one world war called the Battle of Armageddon, but we know who's going to win that, Jesus Christ. Meanwhile, according to the Bible, there's been another worldwide war behind the scenes, as it were, going back to the Garden of Eden. It's the war between God and his people and the good angels against Satan, his demons, and unbelievers. Christians Or on the winning side, together with the good angels, non-Christians better change sides or they're going to die on the wrong side, the losers. Ephesians 6 tells us something about this, spiritual warfare, says that we are soldiers. Now, in Ephesians 5 and 6, we saw several other couplets about husbands and wives, parents and children, and then masters and slaves, and we transferred that to employers and employees, and in each case there is a similar pattern. Uh, We are to respect those above us and submit to their authority, and if we're in authority, we show kindness to those underneath us. It's different in this couplet. We are not to submit to Satan, or the demons, or to the evil temptations of unbelievers, And of course, they don't treat us kindly and wisely either. So we are to see, what does the Bible say in this spiritual warfare? Look at verse 10 as we begin. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Brethren, when we became Christians, we put on the uniform, we became soldiers in the army of God. And this comes out in a number of hymns that some churches don't want to sing. Did you know that? They don't put them in their hymn books. They say, "What pacifists. We are not militarist aggressors. What about Onward Christian Soldiers, which was Winston Churchill's favorite hymn? How about Like a Mighty Army Moves the Church of God? The Bible regularly says we are soldiers in God's army we're not called upon to be pacifists in the spiritual warfare. Now let me ask you to turn to 2 Timothy 2, which has a couple of verses on this very subject. And there are many others, we find examples in the Old Testament. But look at 2 Timothy chapter 2. Old Paul, a very experienced soldier in God's army, gives advice to young Timothy. Says, you therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the things that you have heard from me among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. You therefore must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. If you join the military, you put on the uniform, you give up a certain degree of independence. And as Christians, there are certain things that we have to give up, not just our sins, but we need to examine our lifestyle. Are we wasting time with hobbies, sports, and things like that? I like the way John Piper puts it. He says, brethren, we're in a battleground, not a playground. Fight the good fight. We were once on Satan's side. All non-Christians are still on Satan's side, but when we became Christians, we defected from that. We committed treason against the Prince of Darkness, and we joined the army of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as a result, Satan is now our enemy. He used to be our father. But before we were saved, we were enemies of God. Now he is our father. We've changed sides and... Satan doesn't like it. He, he doesn't give up a single one of his children without a fight. And now that we are his enemies, he fights us. By the way, keep that in mind when you talk to a non-Christian. Say, come and believe in Jesus. Repent of sin. But remember, the Bible says, count the cost. Satan will go after you. He will be your worst enemy. Even though he knows he can't get you back, he's going to try to ruin your life. He is enemy number one. We were drafted into God's army and we also voluntarily insisted, uh, enlisted. It says here, be strong in the Lord, in God's strength, not ours. How much strength do we really have? Not much. Certainly not as strong as Satan or the demons or non-Christians. And yet sometimes we get a bravado and we think, yes, I can... I, can, I remember one preacher got carried away and says, I can fight the devil and rub salt in his wounds. You just try that and he'll overcome you. He's a lot stronger and older and smarter than we are. That's why it says he'll be strong in the Lord. In the book of Judah it talks about Satan's equal enemy is Michael the archangel. They're both archangels, but when they came to meet toe-to-toe fighting over the body of Moses... Interesting story. It says, even Michael, the highest of the angels, did not presume to take on Satan on his own ground, but he said, the Lord rebuked you. And we're not as strong as Michael, and certainly not Satan, so be strong in the Lord. And the lesson in this is what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 12. When I am weak, then I am strong. What do you mean, Paul? When you see your own weakness you lean on God's strength, and you can say like Paul said in Philippians 4, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Be strong in the Lord, brethren. And we find that often in the Old Testament, such as in the lips of Joshua, the successor of Moses. God addressed him, and then he said the same thing to the people of Israel, and the address was, be strong and be of good courage. And I pass that on to you, brothers and sisters, Be strong in the Lord and be of good courage. You're on the winning side. The Bible also says to know your enemy. In fact, that's one of the great strategies that all military leaders have. The great General George Patton said that's number one factor in being a good general is knowing your enemy's strategy, knowing his tactics, and know how he's going to respond to your tactics. And, of course, you do that in chess. Great chess players know not only doing my strategy, but what is he likely to do? Apostle Paul said, We are not ignorant of the devil's devices. Are you ignorant? Or do you know his schemes? Do you know what he's up to and how he operates, his overall strategy, and his individual tactics, and he can change them. Know them, know your enemy. And here's one good thing Satan knows he's a defeated enemy. And we should know that we are on the winning side. Yes, we may lose some skirmishes. We may give in to the devil's temptations. But brethren, look on a higher level. God's overall strategy is going to win. We're on the winning side. And when we realize that, that gives us courage. The Bible says, be of good courage. When we know we're on the winning side, that encourages us. That gives us courage in us. For example, the Bible says, if God be for us, who can be against us? You say, well, the devil's against us. Yes, but God's on our side and he is infinitely stronger than the devil or all the demons put together. That gives us courage. The Bible also says, quote, greater is he that is in you than he that's in the world. Jesus Christ is in you. He is for you. The Holy Spirit is in you. The devil is in the world. He's in the non-Christians but they are not equal to Jesus Christ and certainly not the Holy Spirit. 2 Chronicles twenty fifteen is an address to the soldiers of, of Israel and says, the battle is not yours, but the Lord's. Now what that means is it's ultimately of God, but since he's gonna win our battles, he, that doesn't mean we can just sit back and lollygag and say, well, let, the, let him do it all. No, as we'll see in this passage, He wins the battles through us. He is our commander-in-chief. He will give us directions. And when we follow his directions, he works through us and gives us the victory. Look at verse 11. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Soldiers are issued weapons and in boot camp, they're taught how to use them. Know your enemy and aim at him so you don't shoot your, your fellow comrades in arms, learn what your weapons are and how to use them. We have members of our church that were in the Navy, Air Force, and others. We've had some that were in the Army going back to World War II, and they've told me stories. You learn how, to, you, you take care of that M16. You grease it, you clean it. Know how to use it, keep it loaded. Put it on safety when you're not needing it. We have weapons too, and it says here, we also have the whole armor of God. Notice the word whole. In other words, put it all on, not just some. Otherwise, that one area of weakness, the devil will go after. It's like that story in the Old Testament where a king of Israel fought against another king, and he was winning, and then it, battle turned on him, and he began to retreat in his chariot. And a man on the other side that was a, an archer, shot an arrow, it says, at a venture. It just wasn't aiming it. He just shot it into the sky, and it came and hit the other king between the front and back armor, and it went right in the side into his heart, and it killed him. In other words, an area of weakness not covered by the armor. Put on the whole armor of God, because Satan will know where that one little chink is between the armor, and he'll aim it. Brethren, Satan knows your weakness. Whatever it is, he knows and he'll use your sin, he'll use the world's temptation, he'll use his demons to go after you. So put on the whole armor of God and the rest of his weapons. 2 Corinthians 6, 7 says the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and on the left. And it's the whole armor of God. When you join the army, for example, they don't ask you to bring your squirrel gun with you. If you did, they'd say, put that thing aside. Here, take this, M16. Put on God's armor and use his weapons. Why? Because his weapons will always work. Ours won't work against the devil. Such as what? Well, let me give you some of the weapons that some people have tried to use in spiritual warfare, like violence. No, that's what Muslims do. That's how they get converts. They say, believe in Allah or we cut your head off they resort to violence we're, we're to use the word of God not the sword of man and then in Catholicism they will fight the devil with sprinkling holy water at him I think the devil laughs at that or they'll hold up a crucifix as if they're fighting a vampire or they'll hold up a crucifix or anything like that doesn't work the sign of the cross is not going to repel the devil. But then other ones, such as, as uh, amongst evangelical Protestants, say, well, we don't do that Catholicism. So that in spiritual warfare, they resort to philosophical arguments. Because so, according to Second Corinthians 10, a lot of the spiritual warfare is in the realm of ideas and thoughts. So they say, yes, so you fight fire with fire. So... We use philosophy in defending the faith, for example, in attacking the devil. No. Philosophy is man's tools and it just won't work against the devil. For one thing, he knows a lot more philosophy than you ever will. Use the armor of God. And they're spiritual weapons, not worldly. Let me point to that passage I alluded to a minute ago, so turn to 2 Corinthians 10 where Paul here mentions the weapons of spiritual warfare. 2 Corinthians 10, verse 3. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, that is fleshly or worldly, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. It's in the realm of ideas, and you don't fight fight fire with fire, you fight fire with water, You, you oppose the devil's schemes with God's truth. The weapons of our warfare are spiritual. And it says when you do this, you're able to stand against the wiles of the devil. To stand. That means dig in your heels and say, I'm going to take a stand. I'm not going to retreat. I'm not going to give up. I'm going to take a stand. You know the story of Martin Luther 500 and something years ago. He was on trial for heresy before the Catholic Inquisition. And his life was at risk because he could have been taken out by the Inquisition, tortured and executed. And so they say, what do you have to say for yourself? And he Boldly proclaimed I believe in justification by faith alone not by sacraments not by good works and he said this here I stand I can do no other God help me he took a stand as it says here that you may be able to stand some of you follow the ministry of Al Moeller at Southern Baptist Seminary I like the way he put it he says don't just do something stand there Some people get caught up in just doing things, but they're not taking a stand. He says, Yes, we should do things, but don't just do things. Stand there. Take a stand. Take a stand at work, at the school, in your neighborhood, in the political and social spheres. Take a stand. You may be in the minority, but you've heard the phrase one with God is a majority. Take your stand and expect to be opposed. Take your stand. Verse 13 repeats this and says, Take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand, to stand nobly in victory. And It says here to stand against the wiles of the devil. What does that mean, the wiles? That's an old King James word. Literally, the Greek says the methodias, the methods. You know anything about criminology? There's the M.O., the modus operandi, the way criminals do certain things, the schemes, the tactics, as it were, in warfare. In warfare, you have the overall strategy and the individual tactics. The devil's overall strategy is to fight against God and his individual tactics are many. And we should know what they are. Let me just mention a few of them. John eight forty four. Jesus said... Satan is a liar and the father of lies. That's one of his schemes. And he mixes it with truth because if all he said was lies, you would say, well, you can't believe anything he says. But he mixes it with truth. Do you have the discernment to be able to differentiate his lies from truth? You say, how can I? The Bible, book of God's truth. Related to that is his tactic of deception. Cheating you. And then accusations, his misuse and misquoting of scripture. He can twist it, the Bible says. Or he casts doubts. That was one of his very first tactics in the Garden of Eden. You remember he approached Eve and Eve said, oh no, God says, don't eat it and don't even touch it. And, and Satan just cleverly cast a little doubt and said, did God really say that? Or if he did, did he really mean that? He's still casting doubts today, How? By calling into question the utter infallibility of the Bible. When you hear anybody say, well, you know, the Bible is not all true. It's culturally conditioned and is the opinions of man. You can hear the echo of Satan himself casting doubts. I like what the great Charles Stanley once said. And I shouted amen when I heard He said, any preacher, any theologian that does not believe in the full truth and infallibility of the Bible is a false prophet. Would somebody say Amen. That's one of the tactics of the devil is to cast dispersions on the Word of God. Take a stand and say, I believe the Word of God. Jesus said, Thy Word is truth. There are other tactics the devil has. He uses the sin within us to stir up sin within us and to tempt us. You see, the devil is limited. He's not omnipresent like God alone is, and he is not omnipotent. He does a lot of his work through the demons, through the world. And through the sin that's within us, we need to realize we're capable of giving in to his temptations. So Lord, restrain our sin. He also uses the world, television, movies, novels, the internet. Heresy is another one of his tactics. And also it says in 2 Corinthians 11, he disguises himself is he pretends to be an angel of light. That's another one of his tactics we need to be able to see behind his mask. It says here that you may be able to stand against the wiles, the schemes of the devil. Know what they are and how to resist them. And then Paul explains it more in verse 12. For we do not wrestle or fight against flesh and blood not against is, human beings, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. Our fight is not so much against with unbelievers, but with Satan and the demons. Now, there's a noticeable difference. There's no hope for the devil and the demons. God has not elected them. He doesn't offer them the gospel. They'll never be saved. They'll all end up in hell. By the way, they know that. They know they're defeated. You say, say, well, then why don't they just give up? Why do they bother with us? They know they're going to hell, so they want to take people with them. They can't take a Christian with them, but they know who the Christians are, so they try to ruin the Christians so that they don't make other converts. But the difference is, we are to pray for unbelieving humans. We're to witness to them. We're to plead with them. We're to give them a good example to become a Christian, None of that is what we do to the devil. We're to oppose the devil. We're not to love them. We certainly don't witness to the devil or pray for their salvation. So there's a difference. Brethren, we are in spiritual war. Some of our people have gone to war. They've seen combat and they know it's not an easy fight. It's a holy war. As it were, this is the true jihad. Jihad. Now, that's an Arabic word that Muslim terrorists use. For them, jihad is a holy war of violence. That's why the age-old symbol of Islam is the cemetery. It's that curved sword whereby they make converts to their false god named Allah. The true jihad is a holy war, but not with human weapons such as violence and lies. I recommend you read that great classic by John Bunyan entitled, the Holy War. I remember I read that a few years ago. It's kind of like Pilgrim's Progress, a lot of interesting symbolic terms. We are in a holy war and it's a real fight. It says here we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, we wrestle against principalities. And I would remind you friends, this wrestling is not like that fake wrestling on TV. You ever see that stuff? It's it's a joke! You know, they come disguised in funny outfits and they throw each other around and they throw them outside the ring and someone throws a folding chair in there. It's all fixed and phony. Our wrestling is not like that. It's a fight to the death. And we're not play acting either like, you know, you see actors on television pretending to be a soldier or something like that. It's all fixed and so... You know, when they they pretend that they're punching someone, they're not really hitting that guy. And so they turn on the tape recorder and they have this sound, sound. It's all fake. They're actors. It's not like that when we're fighting Satan. It's the real thing. It's a real fight. 1 Timothy 6.12 says, fight the good fight of faith. In this sense, we're all, as Christians, fighting fundamentalists, not to fight other Christians, But we believe the fundamentals of the faith. We're fighting against the powers of darkness. And we're not to wave the white flag. We're not to retreat. We're not to give in. We're not to switch sides. We'll fight to the finish with everything God gives us until the day we leave this life. Demons, it says here, are fallen, evil angels. Notice how it describes them. Against principalities, powers, rulers of the darkness, and so forth. And this list is found elsewhere in Ephesians, Colossians, and elsewhere. What he is doing is he is listing the various ranks because in armies you have rank. You have, you know, private, sergeants, lieutenants, captains, and so forth. Satan has his ranks. And these are, these are terms, by the way, used outside the Bible to describe ranks among the Roman army. So Satan has his different ranks, and the higher up in this pyramid of authority is Satan, and underneath him are various other evil angels in war and more and more. And then, of course, he has humans on his side as well. The opposite of that are the principalities and powers and dominions of Michael and his angels, the, uh, the guardian angels and the cherubim and the seraphim. So it's a fight between the angels, but which side are we on? So it lists some of these here, these ranks. And at the top are Satan and Michael as equal opposite. Why do I stress that? Satan and Michael are the two that only one the Bible called archangels. Satan started off as a good archangel named Lucifer. He sinned. He didn't lose his, his power. But Satan and Michael are equal opposites. Book of Jude and Revelation 12 and the book of Daniel say that. The reason I'm saying is that Satan's equal opposite is Michael, not Jesus Christ. Jesus is infinitely greater than Satan. He's eternal. He is omnipotent. He is omniscient. None of that applies to Satan. So always remember, if you're on that side of the warfare, your commander-in-chief is infinitely greater than Satan and all of his evil angels. Verse 13 says, stand and withstand against the devil. James 4, 7 says resist the devil and he will flee from you. It also says resist the devil and he will flee, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Do you you see this picture? It's like you're fighting the devil and if you resist him eventually he'll leave you. But you resist him by backing off and trusting in God and God stands on your behalf. It's kind of like the idea... This story has been told before. I imagine it's happened in other circumstances where there's a little boy that's afraid to go to school because of the school bully. And the school bully says, you know, give me your lunch money or I'll give you a fist sandwich. The little boy, oh, he doesn't know that, you know, the, the little boy has an older brother. It's a linebacker for the Green Bay Packers. So he brings his older brother one day, hiding behind the bush, and the bully comes up and says, give me your money, he says, excuse me. The older brother steps forward and says, Who do you think you are beating up on my little brother? That bully's going to run for cover. you see the point? Satan's a lot stronger than us. He's not stronger than Jesus. Draw near to Jesus. He'll draw near to you. Resist the devil and he will flay you. Then starting in verse 14, Paul begins to list some of our weapons. I say some because... Elsewhere in scripture mentions a few others. He mentions our weapon and our armor. Perhaps when Paul wrote this, he was looking at a Roman soldier. We know earlier in the book he was imprisoned in Rome. He was in chains. And there'd be a soldier there guarding him. Usually two. And then two more outside the prison in case he tried to escape. So all Paul had to do was look over at that Roman soldier and say, yeah, helmet, breastplate, shoes, yeah, yeah. Hey, I can use that as an illustration, and that's what he does here. So he mentions the helmet and the belt of truth and so forth. Look what it says first. Stand, therefore, having girded your waist with truth. We'd call that the the belt of truth, just like soldiers today are given various things, and you notice soldiers will have a certain belt with things hanging on them, these little pockets, and they'll have extra ammunition and a little first aid kit and stuff like that. God has given us a belt, the belt of truth. And it's also for support in the midsection. You know, you you cinch it up like a, you ever see a weightlifter tighten up his belt, kind of like a woman's girdle, it kind of gives extra strength. Or like a boxer's victory belt. You ever see that big, big wide belt with a big metal thing in front? It's symbolizing that this is like a shield down here to protect my lower organs. Well, the belt of truth is like that. It protects us. And also, it's something that holds everything else together. It's the belt of truth. What truth? God's truth. The Holy Bible. God is truth, and the Holy Bible is the truth about God. And that includes his promises. Then he says next, there's the breastplate of righteousness. Now, in the Roman army, it'd be either made out of metal... Or leather that had been treated with oil, so it would be hard to pierce. And there's also go in the front and in the back. And unlike that king that I told you about a minute ago, they would cinch it up so there would be no empty things on the side. The breastplate. And soldiers today even have that. Maybe made out of Kevlar, some body armor in the front and the back, just like police officers. Bulletproof vests and those... Breastplate, like the belt of truth, or to protect our inner organs. But what does it mean, the breastplate of righteousness? Not our righteousness, but his. And that would include, number one, his imputed righteousness, by which we are justified, but also his infused righteousness that produces sanctification in us. We are to wear both of these to protect us from the assaults of the evil one. Then in verse 15, he says, having your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Just like today, soldiers wear boots. Back then, they didn't go to war generally wearing sandals. They had a certain kind of leathery sandal that would go up the shins with a piece of metal underneath. Kind of like, you see, shin guards for soccer players. If you've played uh, soccer, you know what I'm talking about. You're not going to go out there without a shin guard or the opponent guy's going to kick you in the shin. You're going to be on the ground writhing in pain. The Romans had that sort of shin guard attached to their boots to protect them. We also know from the ancient historian Josephus and others that in these Roman boots they had cleats, just like a track runner or a football player, or even in baseball, but not in basketball, cleats. In other words, you'd be able to dig in so you wouldn't slide easily in the ground. And it says, your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. What does that mean? It means the gospel prepares and equips us for the spiritual warfare, to tell and to defend the gospel. Whether do you know the gospel? Do you know the word of God to be able to use it offensively and defensively? John MacArthur put it like this. When our feet are shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace, we stand in the confidence of God's love for us, his union with us, and his commitment to fight for us. The gospel reminds us of that, so that when we go to war, we don't think we're all alone. We're supplied with the gospel that reminds us God's on our side. Verse 16 tells us another piece of our weapons. It says, above all, in other words, don't leave this behind, the shield of faith, which, which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the evil one. The shield of faith. Now in the Roman army, they had three different kinds of shields, so let me just address two of them. The first one was a relatively small one, about 18 inches in diameter, and it would be generally round, have a little handle on the back where they could put their arm through and hold on, and they'd do it like this. Sometimes they'd hold it up high, and if they lost their sword, they could use it as a weapon. I'll give you an illustration. It's like uh, some of you mothers are cooking supper, and you look out the kitchen window, and you see little Johnny out there pretending he's a soldier, and he picks up a stick and pretends it's a sword, and he goes over and picks up the garbage can lid pretends it's a shield. Come on, man. You did that when you were a little boy, too. Well, that's what they get from the Romans. In other words, it was a small shield and a sword. But then there was another kind of shield that was not small. It was about four feet tall, two feet wide, and heavy. And it was so big that if the battle turned against him, he could just kneel down behind it. And take all the arrows that were shot at him, or even someone with a sword. So it was a very big one. And sometimes what the Romans would do is they'd say, everybody get together. And then sometimes the, 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 the centurion would say, the turtle. And what they would do, they'd all pick up those huge shields and put them above themselves. They'd all get very closely together. it be like the armor of a turtle. And then at the front, they'd do it like, kind of like a, like a tank. There's another story in Greece where they took some of those huge shields And they would polish them so it would be almost like a mirror. In a certain war, they were very clever. They saw where the sun was and where the enemy was. And they said, okay, line them all up in such a way that we're going to reflect that sunlight into the eyes of our enemy and their horses. And when it hit them, those horses threw the riders off. And they took off running. And the soldiers were kind of like a deer in the headlights And, of course, the Greeks then moved in and won. So there are different ways that they would use the shield. God has given us a shield, the shield of faith. Faith trusts in God to protect us. Proverbs 30, verse 5 says, God is like a shield to those that take refuge in him. Hide behind God's protection. And this says here, will quench the darts, the arrows, the fiery darts what's that? Well, you've probably seen that in movies where Indians, for example, would take a, an arrow and dip it in a certain substance and then set it on fire and shoot it in the air and it might hit a settler's wagon and set it on fire. But they was not just the Indians. They did that in the days of the Romans, the Greeks, the Persians, the Babylonians. It's very old. A similar principle is used today, for example, in warfare or in riots. Molotov cocktails. Someone came up with the idea of getting a glass bottle, fill it up with gasoline, put a rag in the top. If you don't have a rag, use your tire, light it, and throw it. And when it hits like a tank or a person, it blasts and then it goes on fire. It's an incendiary. In World War II, both the British and the Americans firebombed Dresden and Tokyo and other ones dropping firebombs and it would spread. It's the same idea. The devil's errors or dipped in the evil of hell fire. And they want to set things on fire. So know the devil's tactics and his weapons. Lastly, it mentions in verse 17 the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit. In the Roman army, the helmets were usually made of metal, but sometimes of leather dipped in oil for strength because you want to protect your head. What this is symbolizing is that we need protection for our thoughts. The devil will fight us, not so much physically, but in the realm of ideas and thoughts, philosophy, opinions, gossip, public opinion polls, take up the helmet of salvation. Knowing that we are truly saved is a great weapon in resisting Satan's assaults on our thoughts. You see, the devil can read our thoughts. And he shoots thoughts across our mind in temptation and accusation and deception. Put on the helmet of salvation to protect your thought life against the evil one. Now everything that has been mentioned is mainly defensive, could be used offensively, but the last one is offensive. The sword of the spirit. An offensive weapon. And the Romans had three kinds. Number one, there was a small dagger that they could keep either on their belt, or they'd usually slip it into the top of the boot like a, like a boot knife. And that was for close quarter fighting. Then they had the two-foot-long sword, like that little boy with the stick. They had that sword, and that's the one you usually see in the movies. You know, this sharp sword, usually double-edged, very, very sharp. But then thirdly, to match that huge shield... There was a four-foot-long broadsword, or in Scotland they called it the claymore. Very strong. Now imagine a sword that's about that long, very heavy, very, very sharp, and they'd give that to the strongest of the soldiers in the Roman army. And then when he'd go in, he'd say, step aside, and he'd start swinging that thing like this, and you better look out. If it hits you, it could chop your head off. There's hardly any defense against it. They'd chop a shield in half. And God says for us to take up a sword, the sword of the spirit. And what is that? It tells us what it is. It says, which is the word of God? Brethren, this is your primary weapon. Jesus used it against the devil when he was tempted in the wilderness. In spiritual warfare, he quoted scripture. Know what the Bible says and how to use it in your evangelism and in apologetics to resist temptation. Take up the sword of the Spirit. Do you know the Bible sufficiently so that when an accusation or a lie or a deception or a temptation comes your way, you can do a search and say, here's what God says. You believe that promise and you apply it. But you can't apply it if you don't know it. The Bible says he'll bring things to our mind that he has said, but he can't bring to our minds things that we've never put in them. So brethren, read the Bible and learn it. Next week, we'll continue and finish off Ephesians, where he says, also, verse 18, praying always. So brethren, this is just a brief survey of what the Bible says about spiritual warfare and our spiritual armor. Fight the good fight of faith, and may the Lord give you the victory every day. Let us pray. Father, thank you that you will fight the battle for us and through us. We're on the winning side because we belong to Jesus. But yet, Lord, the devil has not given up. So protect us. Keep us well supplied with your armor and with your weapons. And give all of us the victory. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.